If you have your Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 2. No, I'm just kidding, Mark 3. We spent so much time in Mark 2, I thought we could just go back another week. Mark 3 is where we're going to pick up today, verse 7 through 19. Remember, chapter 1 begins the ministry of Jesus, and there is virtually no human opposition at all. Chapter 2, on the other hand, is all about opposition. The religious establishment comes against Jesus. Last week, we, we saw as the Pharisees, who were the religious, and the Herodians, the, the irreligious, they lock hands. They're both committed to destroy Jesus. They both hate him. Of course, that is going to continue throughout the book of Mark all the way to where it culminates at the cross. In chapter 3, the section we're in today, begins to show us how Jesus called and taught and sent forth his disciples into the outer regions. The kingdom and the message of the gospel must go forth, and this is how Jesus does it. So we begin chapter 3, verse 7, reminding you that this is God's Word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach." And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Boanerges. That is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew. And Matthew and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus. And Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father, what a, what a comfort it is that you made a promise through the prophet Isaiah that, that as you send forth your word, it would not ever return void, but you would always accomplish in it what you intend to accomplish. And so we pray today that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you would say to your people. And now we pray that you would use a sinner like me simply to be a mouthpiece, a herald for this good news. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've walked with us through the Gospel of Mark, I wonder if you feel in a passage like this the way that I did at the start of the week. You, you come to it and you think, it, it seems like it's just a transitional passage. Like as if not much is going on. You go from Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. That's exciting. Later on at the, in chapter uh, 3 verse 22, we've got this, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What in the world is that? That's probably a big deal. We'll get to that next week. But as we pause here in what seems to be transitional, if not an ordinary passage, I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, in the Gospels, when something seems ordinary, there is always more going on than meets the eye. And then number two, much of life is really like that. That is, even when you can't see it, there's almost always more going on than meets the eye. 
And it's sometimes those transitional, those sometimes ordinary moments in which God uses to shape and and form us. Why is Mark writing? Mark writes so that you and I might learn who Christ is and what it means to be one of his disciples. Well, that's what this passage is about as well. Chapter 3 has been called the high point of Jesus' popularity. The crowds are rushing to him. And in the midst of those crowds, you get a contrast. What would it be to be a fan of Jesus in the height of his popularity versus those who would be called, who would pour, who, who would pour himself into those whom he would make disciples. Jesus is building his kingdom. And you you notice in this passage that he has so much power and authority that he uses the ordinary. The people and the events are tools in his hand to gather disciples. And so if you've ever questioned in your own heart whether you are special enough, whether you are gifted enough, whether you're holy enough to be one of his disciples, you can take courage in this passage. If you've ever felt stuck in the midst of ordinary events that seem in your life as if not much is happening in your spiritual growth, this is a passage that says God uses the ordinary to accomplish the spiritually extraordinary. As we stare at Jesus here, I want to show you from this text his draw, his authority, and then his choice. We simply start with his draw. I didn't read it, but verse 6 says this, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And this is a pattern which is almost identical going back to chapter 2 verse 13. A sick man is healed, Jesus answers his opponents, they're silenced, and then he retreats to the sea. Well, there's more going on than meets the eye. Each time Jesus goes to the sea, it's akin to going back to the wilderness, where he goes to affirm his sonship and his obedience to the Father in heaven. You remember that it's in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, that Jesus goes to the wilderness and he's led there by the Holy Spirit straight away for one purpose, to be tempted by Satan. And it's in that wilderness after 40 days where Jesus stands victorious as this one true faithful son that the nation of Israel had never been in the wilderness, that you and I have never been in the wilderness, but Jesus has. And so Mark repeats this theme, Jesus in the wilderness. It is not a retreat as if he's scared or as if he's in danger, like a military retreat, no. Jesus retreats to the sea, not to get away from danger, but to confront temptation and the power of Satan again. How great is your Savior? You and I are so weak, and we are so given to fall into sin that we spend much of our Christian lives having to avoid temptation, and rightly so, because we might fall, and we do, And yet, Jesus is so full of love, he's so full of faithfulness to his Father, that he actually retreats after ministry successes, after healing, after preaching, after answering his critics, so that he might go back and face temptation again. 
And so, of course, Mark says, physically speaking, Jesus withdrew with his disciples. But you and I understand, don't we? There's a spiritual sense in which Jesus has retreated with all of his disciples, you and me together, because each time he is faithful in temptation, he displays not only his love for God, but he displays his sufficiency as your Savior. That's why you can trust him. That's why he's actually enough. Christ alone. He's more faithful than you could ever be. And so if you are in Christ and Satan would remind you of your own unfaithfulness, you can fully agree with him. But then you can, of course, remind him and yourself that Jesus is the one who took the fight to Satan's backyard, and every single time he beat Satan on his own turf, the very turf upon which you and I failed. Praise God. There's a Savior who is faithful not only in life but also in death. Now notice these crowds. Verses 7 and 8, they're described as great crowds. They come from Galilee and, and Judea and Jerusalem. That's all inside the borders of Israel. They also come from Idumea. That's uh, what used to be called Edom. It's in the south in the Old Testament. They also come from Transjordan. That's the, the areas east of Israel. They also come from Tyre and Sidon, which was northwest. It's actually probably 100 miles from the Mediterranean coast down to Jerusalem. And these are the great crowds that are full of sick and diseased and contagious and suffering. These are people who are missing arms and legs and hands and fingers and toes. And for context, put it this way, if Jesus was doing his ministry in Auburn, these are the people who are walking or being carried or dragging themselves from Birmingham, from Atlanta, from Montgomery, from Dothan. And verse 8 says, they heard what he was doing. That's why they came. To them, he's a, he's a worker of miracles. Nothing more. And they press toward him, hoping to touch him, hoping to be relieved. And the, the crowds have been described as the diseased masses. In our country, I do not think we can recognize anything like this. It's in fact what most of the world is or has been throughout human history, where there was no medical care and no treatment. And yet one scholar says they do not understand Jesus or his mission. Not one of them is looking for him as the unique and only son of God, but it's understandable they're so deeply afflicted, that's why they come. And yet even this is pressure and temptation upon Christ to be something other than what God sent him to be. And so even as the crowds press him to get what they want, you see a Savior who, as the, the hymn says, is, is robed in frail humanity. Look at verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Sometimes I think when we read the Gospels, we envision that Jesus moves from event to event, from town to town, almost like he's floating on air. And Peter would tell Mark, let me tell you, it was nothing like that. It was raw and risky. 
because everyone had an agenda for Jesus that was different from the one that God had for him. And incidentally, Mark is the only gospel writer to tell us that Jesus requested a boat. I suspect it's because Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, go get a boat. He planned to put it on the water. He planned to create distance from the crowds, not only for personal safety, but also so that he could preach the gospel of the kingdom that he came to preach without being overrun. Notice this little phrase in verse 10. All who had diseases pressed around him. It might be better translated, they fell on him. And I mention that because the crowds are so willing to crush Jesus just so they can selfishly get from him what they want from him. I wonder if there's any chance that that is a temptation which still exists today. And what I mean is to grab Jesus, to to fall on him, to crush him, to commandeer his name or his power, if only I can get from him what I want from him. And so Mark is making a, a distinction. The crowds are not disciples of Jesus. They're consumers of Jesus. And to be clear, this only happens when and where Jesus is popular. I suspect there are no consumer Christians in Iran today. There are no consumer Christians in communist China. There's no people shopping from church to church. There's no consumer Christians in India. But Alabama, Auburn, Opelika, you'll find some consumers. Shoppers, well, we came here primarily because of the youth programs, but now we're probably going to leave because of the children's programs. We liked the music at the beginning. We don't really like it so much anymore. We used to like the preaching. We don't really like it anymore. Did something change? Mm -mm, Same guy. And so it is that it's easy in a world where you shop for groceries to begin to shop for churches. And yet you and I see here a, a warning not to allow ourselves to evaluate either our church or the Lord himself based on a consumer mentality that's evidenced in the crowds. And and incidentally, it's the same consumer mentality that wanted Jesus to to be pressed into being something other than what God wanted him to be. And you might say, well, what was the draw for the crowds? I want Jesus to be who I want him to be so that I can get what I want from him. And for that purpose, I'm willing to crush him or trample over God's intention just to get what I want. I wonder if you do that in prayer. Where is the draw for the disciples? Well, it's not perfect, but it sounds more like this. Jesus is Savior of sinners. He was sent to redeem and to make disciples. He's here to build a kingdom which is not of this world. And it's enough for me, for Jesus to be the Christ and for me to be one of his disciples. Beware the temptation to grab Jesus, to fall on him, to selfishly give Him, an agenda which is different from God's agenda. To commandeer Him to be your personal disciple meant to carry forward your agenda, whether it's political or social or personal. Satan always has the power to blind men's eyes. But 
God uses ordinary to accomplish spiritually extraordinary. His draw, now notice his authority. It's, it's in verse 11 and 12. I think they confirm what I mentioned at the beginning. That Jesus' withdrawal to the sea is so much like his time in the wilderness. He's there to provoke a confrontation with Satan. And you might say, why? I mean, is this really necessary? Well, he's going to battle Satan straight on. And every time he does, he shows increasingly his love for his father. He shows increasingly his faithfulness as a son. He increasingly shows his willingness to submit to judgment, which increasingly shows him to be a perfect savior for you and me. It's actually all about Jesus building his kingdom. Here's a king who is so sovereign in power and authority that people and circumstances and even the demons of hell are tools in his hands to gather disciples. Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. They cried out, you're the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. How does Jesus use demons to make disciples? Well, for one thing, when he rebukes them, he displays his power and his authority over them. When he says, shut your mouth, they obey. So these unclean spirits who have possessed and held captive people are released. Mark doesn't tell us this here, but he will later tell us, and other gospel writers will tell us, that some who had been enslaved and held captive their entire lives by demons bowed the knee and became followers of Jesus Christ. And to this point, I want you to notice another thing. In the gospel of Mark, only two have made a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus. The first is God himself. Mark chapter 1, you're my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. And the other is the demons. Mark chapter 1, verse 24, and here again in chapter 3, verse 11, you are the son of God. What's the point? The point is it takes much more than a good confession or good theology to have genuine saving faith. If you would be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it certainly requires at least that you know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. But it is not a confession which makes you a disciple of Jesus. It is submission. The Bible says that the difference between a good confession and true discipleship is the difference between pride and humility. The demons are not disciples of Jesus, and yet at this moment, their theology is infinitely better than the crowds. They know who Jesus is, but saving faith in Jesus isn't just being able to make an appropriate confession or profession as if faith is a theology exam. Now, saving faith is the Holy Spirit implanted awareness of my need and then a desire to welcome Jesus not only as, as Savior but also as one who would reign over me. And so if you do not know Jesus as your Savior today, you might even sense that there is a kind of confrontation taking place between Satan and Jesus right now and the battlefield is taking place in your own heart. And it's not simply enough to say, yeah, I mean, I know Jesus, he's the Son of God. 
No, the demons believe that. But a disciple is one who desires salvation, who welcomes authority and the reign of Jesus. So if you would embrace God's mercy as it's offered in Christ, he is willing to forgive your sins. And it is available through Jesus. Trust him, follow him, submit and humble to him. Well, I'm an old member of a church Does any of this have anything to say to a person like me? Sure it does. In a church like ours, there's lots of people with very good theology, very solid confessions of who Jesus is. And it is always important to search your own heart and ask the question, who has the sovereignty and the control of my life? So even if I can hear from my mouth something that that sounds like a very sound declaration of Jesus as the Son of God, I need to remember the demons have that too. But do you see in your heart the kind of humility that characterizes a true disciple? A disciple is one who has a life pattern of welcoming salvation, welcoming the reign of Christ through His Holy Spirit. For those who are just curious, there's two other reasons that I think Jesus strictly orders demons not to make him known. The first is this. It's a a confession from gritted teeth. In other words, Jesus, when he tells them to shut their mouths, these demons are not interested at all in confessing him so that they might make disciples for Jesus. It's a last-ditch effort to try to grab authority from Jesus, and Jesus says, nope. Not another word. But then number two, throughout the entire Bible, certainly in the Gospels, the New Testament, God is the one who holds the right to make himself known. In other words, he holds the right to revelation. He reveals himself in the ways and the times that he desires. And lesser beings, certainly demonic beings, cannot reveal the infinite God. So God uses the ordinary to accomplish the spiritually extraordinary. His draw, his authority. We're going to close with his choice. Looking at verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named to be apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. In the Old Testament, you remember, don't you, that the mountain is the place where revelation is given and where mission occurs. It was on the mountain in Genesis chapter 22 that God called Abraham to go to sacrifice his son Isaac. But it was on the mountain that the Lord revealed himself to be the only one who could provide a sacrifice that was sufficient, that he would actually accept And it was on the mountain where the Lord met Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. It was on the mountain where the Lord gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's a calling for them to respond to the grace that had been given. It was on the mountain that the Lord summoned the the elders of the twelve tribes so that they could come and meet with the Lord and, and get a sense of what it would be like to actually have fellowship and to say, this is what the Lord is offering us. If you notice the verbs in these verses, you realize what's happening. Jesus went and called 
those whom he desired, they came, he appointed. How many? Twelve. What's he doing? There's more going on than meets the eye, isn't there? The 12 tribes of Israel constituted the people of God in the Old Testament. These 12 men are the seeds of what will be a new, expanded people of God. Jesus says, I'm going to expand my kingdom so that it becomes a global community and it will begin from these 12. Notice it's Jesus who chooses them. Not one of them chooses him. And he chooses the completely ordinary But notice that he also puts it on himself to prepare them for the mission. Verse 14, he appointed 12 so they might be with him. That's actually discipleship language. Which means that if you and I would be disciples of Jesus, we must be those who spend time with Jesus. Are you growing in your discipleship? Because you are with Jesus in his word, in prayer, in worship. In order to be a disciple, you must be with him. For these 12, of course, the training and the growth is going to take place over the next three chapters in the Gospel of Mark. So in Mark chapter 6, he's going to send them out, and he calls them apostles because they are, they are the sent ones, which is what that word means. Later, they're going to become the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And with the exception of Judas, who betrays Jesus, these will be the sent ones who who are sent to the entire known world. Notice who makes up his choice. These are the men that God chose to turn the entire world upside down. Let's start at the end. So powerful is Jesus that he can choose his own betrayer. Judas Iscariot, because from that betrayal, Jesus will willingly walk to the cross and lay down his own life to pay for the sins of all his disciples and every other disciple who would follow. Now consider Simon. He's an ordinary fisherman. Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means rock, not because that's who he was when Jesus met him, but that's who he will become through the work of Jesus. In the Gospels, Peter is radically inconsistent. One moment he professes that Jesus is the Christ. The next moment he rebukes Jesus for talking about the cross. One moment he declares his loyalty. And the next moment he denies Jesus. And then after the resurrection, it is this often inconsistent Peter who stands and preaches the sermon at Pentecost. Who goes to to plant and build churches. He writes two epistles He gives Mark all of the information that he needs to write this gospel. And then he dies in Rome, but he says, No, I cannot be crucified in the same way that my Savior was crucified. Turn the cross upside down, and I'll be crucified like that. Under Nero. James, son of Zebedee, one of the first disciples of Jesus, becomes the very first disciple to be martyred. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He's executed under the reign of King Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. But church history tells us something fascinating. This ordinary man is being marched to his execution. And with such extraordinary courage 
One of his captors saw that, and and, and that captor fell down on his knees, and he asked for forgiveness from the Lord, and he confessed that he too was a follower of Jesus Christ. And then this once captor said, it is not okay for James to die today alone. And so they were both beheaded. And then John, the brother of James, to our knowledge, he's the only of the disciples who was not martyred for the cause of Christ. He, he lived, we believe, to 100 A.D. And then guided by the Holy Spirit, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters in the New Testament plus the book of Revelation. And Jesus called James and John sons of thunder. I think he saw some fire in them. A fire that he could sanctify for his purposes. Ordinary men. And he says, I'm even going to use their fiery outbursts as instruments in the hands of a sovereign king. What do we know about the rest? Well, between the Bible and church history, it seems that they were part of spreading the gospel to Spain and India and North Africa and the uttermost parts of the world. They were, in fact, ordinary disciples, much like you and me, who sent, simply made more disciples. One writer of church history acknowledges that as the church spread, most of the missionary work was not carried out by the apostles, but rather by the countless and nameless Christians who, for different reasons, persecution, business, missionary calling, traveled from place to place, taking the news of the gospel with them. In God's economy, there's always more going on than meets the eye, which is deeply encouraging so that you and I would be those who would find ourselves in the names of these other disciples of whom not much is known but of through whom the Lord Jesus turned the world upside down in order to build his kingdom. God uses the ordinary to accomplish the spiritually extraordinary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would embolden us seeing this and hearing from your word not only to grab hold of Christ in our hearts, but to continue to walk with him as disciples of Jesus more and more each day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.